Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Games We Love podcast. I'm your host, Aaron White, and you are listening to a show that promotes positive gaming discussion through interviews and conversations with passionate gamers, including journalists, developers, podcasters, streamers, critics, and other diehard video game fans about a personal favorite game that they love. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jacob Decker. He is a video producer for GameSpot, as well as the host of the excellent weekly podcast, GameSpot After Dark. Welcome, Jake. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this game. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And uh, it's really cool to be able to talk to you after kind of running into you via email. I don't know if that's a thing, if you can run into somebody via email, but (laughs) we communicated back and forth uh, last year around PAX. And we were going to try to meet up, and I wasn't able, ever able to sync up with your schedule, so it's cool to kind of get to talk to you in real time now. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, PAX was a lot of fun, but also crazy. So. It is. It is. <laughs> Listeners, if you've never been to a PAX before, it is absolutely draining. And especially for folks like you, Jake, who are there kind of covering it, I'm sure, who have lots of deadlines to meet as far as meeting different, uh, getting into different panels and game demos and such it can be a lot (laughs) yeah i mean it's no e3 that's for sure so it's not as it's not as busy but still my head was spinning after after the first two days it was like all right i need need a rest yeah it's like taking a break off from your vacation when you get back (laughs) is sometimes how it feels you like go on this big cool convention and then you're like no i need a vacation from that fun thing well i wanted to get started by just finding out some about you and Basically, I just want to start at the beginning. Like, how did you get into gaming? Like, when did it happen? How old were you? How far back does your love of gaming go? Uh, so I was always fascinated with video games, but my parents didn't want me to play them. Uh, I think they were worried I'd just turn into a vidiot, as I remember what they'd call it, which is just <laughs> such a, a parent dated word. Uh, but that's what they'd always say. They'd be like, no, you don't want to turn into a vidiot. Uh, and eventually, I guess I just whittled them down until finally they got me a Game Boy, I think a Game Boy Color. Yeah, a Game Boy Color with Pokemon Red. Uh, and I was so excited because all my friends were playing Pokemon and I wasn't wasn't playing Pokemon, but I'd heard all these great things about it. Uh, and I got it. I think I was like, God, I think I was I was pretty young, four or five, maybe five probably and i you know i had no idea what i was doing but of course i fell in love with it and i think that's the game that really started this trajectory and then after that i eventually convinced my parents to let me get a nintendo 64 where i played a ton of super smash bros and i'd say ever since like ever since super smash bros is when i really started playing games uh and i not so much kept up with the industry but like i was i i was Kept my ear close to the ground for console releases. I remember being super excited for the GameCube and finally getting it. And then I think like the moment where I started getting more invested in gaming and kind of curious about what else I could do with it professionally was probably around the time the 360 came out uh, when I was playing games like Call of Duty 2. But I think the big one that really cemented, I don't know if it cemented my passion because I was always super passionate, but the one that made me really start to think critically about games was The Last of Us, which came out in 2013. So I'm very excited for the sequel. Oh, yeah. So that makes sense. Uh, Nintendo 64 then. So that means you started off as a Nintendo guy. This is always a fun thing to find mm-hmm. out. Did people start with like PlayStation or did they start with Nintendo? It's usually one of those two. Most people didn't start with like a Sega 
Some people might have started with an Atari, but those folks are generally quite older. I know I did, but it was really a normal Nintendo for me. So Nintendo 64 means you did not have a original Nintendo or Super, or not, not Super, uh, or yeah, I guess Super NES came first, right? Before 64. Yes, it did. Yeah. So did you ever go back and get those consoles or play those games? Uh, I mean, I played a lot of those games. I didn't get any of those consoles, but when Nintendo started doing the whole virtual console sort of deal, then I played games like Metroid, uh, Super Metroid, and a bunch of the Mario games. Uh, I played Link, A Link to the Past, though, when that came to GBA with Four Swords. But yeah, those, I, I was definitely a Nintendo guy. I remember my parents got me a PlayStation 2 for Christmas, and apart from like Jack and Daxter... I didn't play it too much. I just wanted to play Nintendo games. And then I hit a point when I was like in middle school where I was like, oh, I'm getting too old for Nintendo games. Got to play Xbox. So I got an Xbox and played Halo. And I, and I still, I think I lean more to the, towards the Xbox than my PlayStation. Okay. Uh, but like, I'm at the point where it's, I kind of just, I dip my toes in everything. Like I play a lot of my Switch, play a lot of my Xbox, play a lot of my PC. Wherever the uh, games are is where you go once you get to that point. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm definitely in a, <laughs> I'm definitely in a fortunate position, right, where I can like afford these consoles and like I I I'm able to go to the console I want to and I play all the games I want. So I'm very much like I don't have sides. I don't take sides, and I know the console wars or whatever are about to blow up because of the new consoles. But like I've never seen it that way, at least not for the past decade or so. It's been more of just like, all right, well, where are the great games at, and I'm gonna play where the great games are and. You know, it's hard to go wrong, I feel like, these days. Yeah, definitely. I love that you mentioned Jack and Daxter. That series is very near and dear to my heart. In fact, I actually tweeted that name of that series out today. I was retweeting a, what PlayStation games do you want to see for PS5? And Jack and Daxter was on my list. It's not going to happen, but I really would love to have like a modern day version of Jack and Daxter. Uh, I would love that. Such a great series. Well, you work for GameSpot now, and... It's always fascinating to hear the trajectory of folks and how they transition from being a video game fan, like so many millions of kids are, into actually working in that industry. And so tell me some about like, how did your path get you to where you are now? Yeah. So, I mean, like I mentioned before, I think The Last of Us was actually a pretty big influence when I played The Last of Us, because before that I was more into film. Uh, I was going to school for film production. I made a lot of short films for school with friends, whatever it might be. Uh, but then when The Last of Us came out, I was like, you know, people are making stories that are more int- like just as if not more interesting uh, with video games. And like being able to play it just adds a whole nother level to this. So I I wouldn't say I pivoted like I was still very into film and I ended up graduating uh, college with a degree in film. But while I was doing that, I was writing reviews for game sites uh, really small game sites. Like I helped, fo- I helped found a game, a game website with some friends. Uh, I made a couple different YouTube channels with it. So I kind of just blended my knowledge from film production with games and games journalism. Uh, definitely not one to one, that's for sure. But I kind of just did what I could to make things work. Like I'd help out a lot of friends with videos, video reviews, and whatnot. And I kept doing that for about two or three years, I'd say, until 
a friend of mine sent me a link and he's like, Hey, GameSpot's hiring a internship for video producer. And I was like, that sounds perfect. Like I'm in school for video production, but I have a huge body of work, uh, covering games. So I threw my hat in the ring and I did not hear anything for like four months. And I just, I just <sighs> forgot about it. I, I applied and it's like, all right, well, you know, like they clearly there's other things that, that they found someone else or I was just too late. Uh, and then I got, I think like, man, I think April, early April, I finally heard something from them. And it was, I, I had, I did like three or four interviews and I was so nervous and excited and terrified. I actually drove from Southern California to Northern California just for the in-person interview. And they were like, wait, why? We can just do it over, over <laughs> online through Skype. And I was like, no, I got to make the right impression. I got to be there. At the very least, even if I don't get it, I can say that I was in the GameSpot office and I got to meet some of the people who worked there at the time, like Mary Kish and Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, so I did that interview and then I left. I went home and they're like, oh, we'll let you know in a couple of days. And I didn't hear anything for a week. And my birthday falls on April 16th. And I was supposed to hear back before April 16th. But oh, I remember man. that birthday, I was a nervous wreck. Like I didn't do anything like I. My parents took me out for lunch. I hung out with friends, but the entire time I was just like checking my email over and over again. I was terrified because I was like, I made it this far. Now I have to know. Like right. if I never heard anything, that'd be one thing, but I'm at the point where I need to know. Uh, and then I, they hired me. I got really lucky. Uh, and then I was supposed to transfer to a, uh, school in Los Angeles, but I ended up switching last minute to go to San Francisco State hoping that after my summer internship, they maybe would keep me around because I'd be in the area, which to my luck, they did. So I've just been at GameSpot ever since about five years now, five years on May 26th, I think. Oh, that's awesome. So it, that seems to be a commonality between a lot of folks is the internship route. And I think that might be somewhat unique to the game industry. There's not a lot of careers where you have these internship type situations where then you kind of have to parlay that into an actual paying job. Mm -hmm. um, do you know, do people often fly in and take these internships when they're not in college or is it usually people who are doing something else? So with CBS, uh, which or CBS interactive, which owns GameSpot, uh, you have to be in college in order to apply for this internship. I think you can get away with it. If you just graduated and you okay. apply, then they will let you do it. If you get it, of course. Uh, but no, they, they mostly require applicants to be in college. That said though, uh, I know cause I was helping hire, I helped to hire the intern last year. There were, I mean, there, there were people of all ages who mm -hmm. were in, just in college, like community colleges is applying. And like, we would get a lot of those applications forwarded to us to see that. So, so it's not necessarily an age thing. It's just a, whether or not they're in college because uh, they do pay. I got paid, which is pretty rare, especially as someone who heard a lot about Hollywood and the film industry about how I'd work for years without getting paid. Absolutely. Or if I got paid, it would be nothing. So, so they do pay. But I think one of the big reasons why they want students is because they don't pay a whole lot for being in the Bay area. Um, I mean, I mean, they, they pay decently, but the Bay area is it's absolutely expensive. expensive. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. So they want to make sure people are also getting, units for class for school mm -hmm. um so so i think it's just a, a way so, so you're getting more than just experience money just experience and money you're also getting some credits that you can hopefully use to graduate now when you went there you said your your backup your history was in like short film and film related 
and, and writing film reviews is that you said film reviews. So what do you, how did you transition that into what you do at GameSpot? Like, are you a reviewer? Are you an editor? Do you make videos? Yeah. So I mostly just make videos. Uh, I, I actually didn't do a lot of review. Like I, I wrote reviews for games in my free time, but I didn't really review movies that much. I think cause it felt too much like the assignments we'd get in class or be like, all right, I analyze the scene in a movie. And I, and I'd be like, I don't know if I want to do that on my free time necessarily, but yeah, GameSpot, I pretty much just produce, produce videos. However, I do reviews every now and then. Like I did the review for Pokemon, let's go Pikachu and let's go Eevee a couple of years back. Uh, I re-reviewed the Witcher three for switch because the Witcher three is one of my favorite games. Uh, so, so I dip my toes in it, but I'm mostly focused on video. That's awesome. Yeah, I GameSpot goes back so far in my history. I was dabbling in review writing long before I became a, an official film critic, which is what I do now, and I write those reviews. So it's fun to hear you talk about that because um, that's what I do, and I host a film podcast and such. And but the my first love was gaming, and so in the early 2000s when I discovered GameSpot, I actually wrote reviews and had a blog. GameSpot had a blog system. Oh, it yeah. still does. We, yeah, we still do. <laughs> but it's kind of, eh, it's a little janky now. You know, it's not as used, I don't think, as it used no. to be. But it used to have really active forums. I mean, it was the it spot at the time um, for that, that kind of community before it was blossoming like all over the internet, before you could get it anywhere. And man, I was just, I loved it. I had so much fun and it was such an integral part of like my growth into who I eventually became because it was the first time I'd ever written any sort of reviews for anything. And I was like, oh, why not? I'm just going to write it and put it on this little blog here. And then people in the GameSpot community would come to me and talk and, and give me feedback. And it's interesting to see that same thing kind of carried over now into you have a GameSpot Discord that is kind of tied to your GameSpot After Dark podcast. And I've seen that same awesome community there. And it's it's really fascinating because I've been in a lot of film critic circles and it's not always positive but the one that you guys have seemed to create is always like that um, and i think it's it's neat that it's kind of been like that for 20 years there's something there about the way that GameSpot's leadership has kept your your you know business going in which that that seems to be part of your culture yeah the discord's super nice because like it, it's so easy to get drowned in negativity uh, e even, you know, if, if I make a video and it's generally really liked, there's still those comments, those people who just like to complain, nitpick, find something. And like, I'm all for criticism. Uh, like I do it all the time. People can criticize me, but so much of the criticism on YouTube, just, it, it's simply not criticism. It's just people just trying to press your buttons, get you angry, uh, tell you how wrong you are without backing any of it up, which, you know, it's fine. They can do that if they want, but it, it gets exhausting. So it's really nice to have the Discord where what you're talking about is seeing a lot of these people that I'm sure would have been really involved in the blogs, but because that's something that doesn't exist in the same way it does now, it's hard It's hard to see those people. But now that we've got this Discord, a lot of the people who really invested in GameSpot and really, really enjoy the work that we do are kind of just put front and center. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, last thing about you and your history is I have a question about your gaming habits. So what does Jake love? Like, what are your absolute favorite consoles? What are your What are your favorite type of games? Like, do you have, you know, a preference for genre? Like, what's going to get you every single time? Totally, man, that's a tough question. I mean, I think 
role-playing games are usually the ones that I'll always gravitate to. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of The Witcher. Like I said, those are some of my favorite games of all time. Uh, the Mass Effect games, I love to death, uh, except Andromeda. Wasn't super wild about Andromeda. Um, but I mean, that just kind of scratches the surface too, because I love shooters. Uh, I'm excited to check out Bioshock on Switch, which should be coming soon. Yeah, I, I, I guess the, the easier thing to say would be the genres I don't really play are sports games and I kind of just dabble with strategy games. Those seem to be a pretty common thing. Like people that are either, you're either into those or you're not. A lot of, a lot of people are just sports gamers too. Totally. I got my start largely doing that it was like all sports for me all the time and then once i started playing other games i was like well i don't have time for those sports games now because it's either that or nothing (laughs) and so i fell off of them cool well i wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what you've been playing recently that you've really enjoyed so i call this our recent gaming shout outs and the point is just to kind of highlight something for listeners that maybe they should check out um, so what is like in the last six months, have you played anything that's really caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, I guess this is kind of an obvious one. Uh, I, I've been playing a lot of games that came out years ago, but I think the game this year that has stood out to me most is Half-Life Alex. And I'm someone who didn't play any of the Half-Life games until this year. Because of Alex, I decided to go through and play Half-Life, uh, Half-Life 2, Half-Life episodes half-life 2 episode 1 and 2 mm-hmm. just to prepare for alex uh and i was like blown away by that game i i think what valve did was incredible uh i've never felt so like sucked into a world and i guess you know vr that shouldn't be too surprising but still the attention to detail uh just being in that world is so cool um now, is it it's it's a direct sequel to half-life 2 and its episodes is that correct does it actually follow on the story or is it kind of like a spinoff it's i I, it's it's a spinoff i don't want to get too into it just in case there's people who are still playing it or plan on playing it but for the most part the game is you you play as alex who is in half-life 2 but before the events of half-life 2 i think i think the game is like five years before the ending of half-life 2 uh but it does tie into some of the it does tie into some of the episodes so it's very important to play the early stuff mm. but uh it is it's excellent what is the vr experience like i mean i know not in general but just specifically for this one is it intense is this a is it much like a horror game at times because some of half-life feels like a horror game yeah i would say this is more of a horror game than anything else it's it's not like terribly scary i guess like you're not going to be having nightmares well i don't know you might i didn't have nightmares of it but there are definitely dark areas where the head crabs are jumping at you (laughs) and that can be scary and your ammo is super limited uh so you really have to be careful with you know what you're going to shoot at uh one thing that i love one of my favorite things about it is how the reload works in this game because it's something you know you take for granted when you're playing a shooter, right? You just press X or whatever, and then they eject the magazine, put in the new magazine, pull the bolt back or whatever it might be, and like you don't do any of that. You just press a button and it's done. But in Alex, there's you press a button to eject the mag, and then you have to reach in and grab a new magazine, and then you slide the new magazine in, and then you chamber the first round. And like when enemies are coming at you, it's uh-huh. it's it's terrifying because you're like scrambling to 
figure out like, oh, where's my, and then I'll like drop the magazine and have to pick it up off the ground. And like, it's really funny because I showed a friend who hadn't done much VR, but he's played lots of games and he was like, he was freaking out because he just like couldn't reload and enemies were surrounding him and he was knocking bottles over just trying to pick up his magazine. Like it's, it's really cool. And then, you know, when you get used to it, you feel, you feel like a badass because you're just, you know, you'll put a couple rounds into an enemy, eject the clip quickly, grab another one, load it in just like John Wick. That sounds awesome and incredibly difficult. I would, probably, yeah. I would really struggle with that. I think I'd probably have lots of head crabs jumping on my face and I'd trip. I just envision myself falling over my coffee table or something in my living room. Backstepping. Totally. It is definitely jarring when they're coming at you, uh, now, but it it, it it was fun. It was so, so much fun. So Half-Life's, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's like first person, but it's also a very strong narrative game. How much narrative is in Half-Life Alex? Is it, because I feel like VR is really set up for the action part of gaming, but I've never really heard anybody talk too much about like how it serves as story. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say Half-Life Alex, like on paper, I think the devs even said this, like Half-Life Alex has more story than all of the other Half-Life games combined. Like oh, there aren't wow. really like cutscenes where where it'll cut away from your character, but there are a lot of moments where characters will talk to you or you interact with characters. So there is a lot of story there, and I think it is the best Half-Life story they've done. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with how far technology has come since, I don't know, when did Half-Life 2 come out? Like 2004? A long time ago. Yeah, yeah so far. Very long oh, time ago. The history um, of people wanting a new Half-Life game. I know. Yeah, and they got it. I know. It's too bad for like those of us who don't have powerful VR. I, I was thinking about getting into it soon, and I just I was looking at my computer specs, and there's just it's going to require a complete uh, overhaul and upgrade of the computer before I can really run it in a way that is you know a, a good way, I guess. Or, did you play it on Oculus or Valve VR? I played it on Quest. So, so Oculus okay. Quest, I had to get a link to plug into my PC, and my PC was pretty old, okay. uh, so it was having a lot of trouble running that game. Fortunately, I with my tax return and yep. the <laughs> the money I got from the I don't, I don't know the the twelve hundred dollars, yeah. I just pretty much used it to upgrade my PC, and then it, it was running great. But that is one thing to keep in mind: is that like if if you can't run this game well it, it's very hard to play just because this the stuttering in vr is is rough <laughs> yeah i'm crossing my fingers that it comes to psvr at some point i know it's probably years down the road but maybe maybe one day it'll happen. yeah i mean i i i'm i'm i i would i would be surprised if it doesn't eventually start coming to other platforms because i yeah i don't know i i think valve really wants people to get behind vr and I think that would be a way to do it. Just get this game to as many people as you can, because I think after playing that game, like sold me on VR. Like I played other VR games here and there and they've been fun, but that was the game where I was like, oh, okay, there is a whole new level of storytelling that was not possible before VR that is now possible. And I'm very excited to see what other developers do. Unfortunately, I don't know if a lot of developers will do much with it, at least not for a while, just because it's so expensive and the return is pretty small like you have to be valve right yeah. like you have to have the disposable income <laughs> yeah exactly yeah 
Well, awesome, man. I'm glad you talked about that one. I hadn't really known anybody who played it. So it's a first for me as well as anybody maybe listening who hasn't got to hear about it yet. Uh, the one I wanted to mention is, I don't know if you've heard of this, but Deliver Us the Moon. Have you heard much about that one? I've heard of it. I've heard I should play it. Okay. So this is a indie title and I've had my eye on it for quite a while because I love space and I love sci-fi and it is both of those things. It was a Kickstarter actually in March of 2016. It's a Dutch developer and it actually barely made its goal. It had a hundred thousand euro goal and it only raised 103,000 euros. So it was really close to not maybe getting developed in the way that it is today, but it is extremely technically refined and it, it, I would say it it requires a lot of heavy lifting to run this game. It it first came out on PC, which I imagine it plays amazing on like a really decked out rig. And then uh, now it has released on PS4 and on Xbox game pass on April 23rd, which was my birthday, which had me all excited too, because I was, <laughs> we have close birthdays. But I was like, hey, <laughs> yeah, cool. This game comes out on my birthday that I've been looking forward to. It's a bonus. Um, and it, basically the story of this game is, so the Earth was dying, and humans went to the moon and found this thing called Helium-3. And this thing called Helium-3 was able to create power for the Earth to sustain the Earth. And so they made these cool big antennas that would project this Helium-3 to the Earth and thus power the entire earth well later down the road the mpt this this antenna goes offline helium 3 stops being transmitted to earth they can't reach the station in the colony on the moon can't figure out what's going on and the earth starts dying again and it's been happening for about five years the earth is on the verge of complete collapse now um, being overtaken by storms and such and it took us five years to build um, one last space shuttle and and create this system for hope so there's me i.e the player one lone astronaut that is going to the moon to kind of figure out what happened and so the whole game is you going to the moon and visiting these different locations from like a space station to the colony to this monorail that you have to travel back and forth between different areas on the moon and you're trying to piece together what happened? Where did everybody go? Why did this thing suddenly go offline? And what are you going to do to be able to fix it? Because the earth depends on you. And I was sucked into it from a story perspective. And I'm big on story. And it sounds like you are too. And so I would definitely recommend it to folks who are, because what surprised me is there's no aliens to be on. And to be honest, I was fully expecting it. I kept waiting. At some point, I was like, there's going to be an alien, right? Like, I'm going to run into somebody and or something. Something's going to happen. <laughs> there has to be an alien in this story. But there's not. It's very humanistic, which I thoroughly enjoyed because it was more realistic because of that. It's, okay, this is a real human moral dilemma that ends up being the situation that they're dealing with. And so the way that you discover these things is it's a mix of first person and third person gameplay depending on what kind of action you're doing what location you're in it's got really good physics so when you're not in a an area with gravity you're definitely like floating around you have to go in and out of airlocks you have a timer of oxygen when you're outside of a station it's 
got a great soundtrack, one of those immersive, like you got to either play it on headphones or I turned off my lights and played it late at night every single session so I could jack it up real loud and just kind of be immersed in it. And it was awesome. It has this little robot that will follow you around through about half of the game. And it's called an ASC, but essentially it's like a ghost from Destiny. I feel like all of those little robots in space games these days are circles. Uh, ever yeah, since, totally. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's like, it's either that, or it actually reminded me a lot of Wheatley from portal two. It looks almost identical to him. Um, and so he allows you to kind of do some puzzle solving aspects. You can control him and turn things on remotely and, you know, go through little areas that your character can't get through. You get to drive on the moon at one point and basically your story is being filled out by collecting information. You read notes that you find on the ground and in people's rooms and quarters and you kind of watch these holographic videos and every once in a while you'll come across these like two minute long audio logs of conversations between characters that will start to slowly show what has happened in the world and it's really good uh, for most of the game i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it the final third is not quite as good, I don't think, and doesn't quite hold up to the rest of this game. It's overall, I would say, maybe a five to six hour experience. So I love this kind of game because you can get in, you can get out. I feel like we always are playing 120 hour RPGs like Persona 5 Royal yeah. or something. And it's always nice to like, oh, hey, I'm going to just play this on a Saturday and I'm done. And I feel like get that kind of that high endorphin rush of a completion but it's got some performance issues on PS5. Or, no, not on PS5. PS4 hey, you Pro. got a PS5 over there? I know, I know. I'm just like way ahead. But uh, on the PS4 Pro, and you know, I would expect it to run maybe a little better on the Xbox One X, but I don't think it's going to be a lot better. It tends to freeze anytime you go into a new area, which can be really frustrating. Uh, it's when the game is auto-saving, and it only lasts a second or two, but it just it interrupts the, the immersion from kind of feeling like you're that character when all of a sudden your screen just completely stops and you have to okay hold on now what's going on um and then the last couple areas of the game get really puzzle heavy to the point where up until that point it's a pretty linear game which i personally really enjoy i it's there's not a way to get lost for very long you kind of know the game does a good job of directing you like okay you're gonna go in this area and here's where it is in the last couple areas, not so much. It's a little easier to waste a lot of time, which can be annoying if you're not the kind of person that enjoys that sort of puzzle solving. But it's great. It's got a lot of little pop culture and movie references throughout from Kubrick's 2001 to uh, Orwell's 1984. It's even got a trophy that refers to Stephen King's It that's pretty fun to get. And so... Yeah, man, I, I really like it. And again, it's on Game Pass. So at least as of this recording, it's on Game Pass and I'm sure it'll be there for a few months. So, you know, if you're into sci-fi, like realistic sci-fi and or space games and you like narrative stuff and this is one that's definitely worth checking out, I think. I'm definitely going to give that a shot. That sounds awesome. Have you have you played Tacoma? It kind of sounds like Tacoma in some way. Same type of genre. I have not. In fact, I have for a long time told myself I was. I have a whole list of like 
Tacoma, Gone Home, What Remains of Edith Finch. What's the other one? Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. I have like lots of those games. I have them all downloaded. I have them in a folder. And I just, for some reason, I've never fired them up. But I would anticipate it's very similar to those. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. That sounds awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think everybody who's mildly interested will be sucked into it pretty quickly. And then yes. I think people that don't like this kind of experience are absolutely there's no reason for you to check it out because you're not gonna like it i mean mean, especially with game pass right i can just download it after this and it is give it a uh, shot game pass is amazing i come on sony figure something out similar well speaking of game pass no that's not a good segue but the game that we are here to mostly talk about is one of your favorite games and it is on xbox not on game pass that is splinter cell chaos theory the old Splinter Cell. Is this the last Splinter Cell game that came out? I think it might be. This yeah, is the last like Splinter Cell game in the style of the classic Splinter Cell game. So after we had, there was Conviction and, uh, or no, there was Double Agent Conviction and then, oh God, I can't remember the, the latest one that came out in 20. Blacklist, that's it. Blacklist, that's it, yeah. And then it's been Silence and we haven't got yep. a new one. Splinter Cell often shows up on people's most anticipated list or wish lists for what they want in a new generation game, what they want to be remade or remastered or a new version of. So tell me this, why did you choose Splinter Cell Chaos Theory? Why is this one of your favorite games? So, I mean, I think, to be honest, I think a lot of it just has to do with nostalgia. Uh, I, I, I had a friend and I would... You know, we'd mess around in the old Splinter Cell games, and we enjoyed them one and two, uh, Splinter Cell and Pandora Tomorrow. And I remember, I think he showed me the trailer for Chaos Theory, and it, it just visually, it was such a huge step up from what we got before it. And I, I remember like being blown away on the fact that that's what it was going to look like on my Xbox, uh, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, so I pre-ordered it. Me and him, we went to GameStop day it came out we got the special edition we came back we found out there was co-op which we didn't know and the co-op mode is fantastic still i think one of the best co-op modes in games shocking was not expecting that yeah Uh, um but like i just remember being so impressed by it because it it took that it took what splinter cell had done like splinter cell kind of tried to mimic metal gear here and there and 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 some things i thought they did better other things they didn't uh but chaos theory for me felt like the one that just really nailed what splinter cell was trying to be and it even like took it further than before with especially there's a mission called bank sounds basic but it is one of the best splinter cell missions ever in my opinion just because they decided that it was time to just really embrace like an open level it's not a huge level, but there are so many different tactical options you have at the beginning on how you want to infiltrate this bank and how you want to figure out how to get in. And it's got all the like classic tropes, like, you know, the, the, the laser trip wires and stuff. And like, you can, you can repel from the, from the ceiling and there'll be the laser trip wires around you as you go down and you can hack a computer while hanging upside down to shut everything down. But yeah, I mean, I think what really impressed me when I first played it was just how streamlined it felt compared to the other Splinter Cell games and how like st- how much it pushed the Xbox with like lighting and weather effects and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's definitely one of the most memorable games and even firing it back up before this podcast to kind of get reacclimated with it and I hadn't played it since it came out. 
I didn't even know that there was an Xbox One enhanced version mm-hmm. of it, but there is. And you can tell. I mean, it still looks pretty good today. I mean, it looks older, but it certainly does not look bad in the way that a lot of generations, that generation of games do. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it still looks pretty good. And it's kind of cool because you're always flipping back and forth, too, between different visual displays. So you might be in your night view where it's green or it might be gray because you're trying i don't remember what the color is you're trying to do the audio check um and so it it looks good in all of those which is pretty spectacular now you mentioned the stealth which it's a stealth game and Mm -hmm. this is a true stealth game like back like when like assassin's creed used to be a stealth game (laughs) and it is no longer you know and like when i think of assassin's creed stealth it was always still like, yeah, but that's not Splinter Cell stealth. That's what no. I really want. <laughs> Splinter Cell, you're right. Absolutely. It's like a standard setter. And I wonder, like, what do you feel like sets it apart from what we see today that makes it hold up as, like, that stealth game that everybody uses to define what a stealth game should be? I mean, honestly, I think it's the pace. Uh, I, I feel like most stealth games now, uh, there's two kind of stealth games, right? That I feel like there's one where it wants to be like super fluid and fast. Like you should be able to get from point A to point B as quickly as you can so you can get a takedown as quickly as you can. Like I think uh, the, the Dark Knight games or the Batman games are a good example of that. How you can like jump from different gargoyles, you can drop down on people, grab them quickly, uh, which is great. I love that kind of gameplay. But there was something so satisfying about Splinter Cell in particular, where you had to be patient, you had to cover your tracks, you had to make sure you were making the right moves, uh, you had to take out cameras, or if you wanted to get like the highest stealth score, you had to either shut down the cameras manually or just avoid them. Uh, it, I, I guess the closest thing I would relate it to now is like Dishonored, the Dishonored games, like Dishonored 2 especially, where if you want to play that game stealthy, you really have to take it slow and you really have to think carefully about what you're going to do. But I think part of it, too, is just that third person perspective and the way it plays with uh, light and darkness, because uh, I feel like that's another thing that a lot of stealth games kind of forgot about. Like, you're just like, oh, yeah, you're in if you're in dark, you're fine. If you're in light, they're going to see you. But like this had like levels of darkness. So like you'd go into a room and it would be dark and you'd see a guy. And the first thing you do is shoot out the light. And then it would just shut down the lights and then they'd have to pull out their flashlight and search for you. And like that was so satisfying, right, to just walk into a room and like turn off all the lights with your pistol before anyone notices you. Yeah, I mean, I can ramble about this game a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a incredibly you're right. It, It requires an incredible amount of patience. And I can admit, like I have been conditioned to the point now where it's hard to go back to that when you fire it up because totally. you're so used to these open world action games where in Assassin's Creed is a great example. It's all about the fast kill. I mean, my goodness, we're like a superhero in the latest Assassin's Creed. We're like teleporting with our spear. Yeah. And, and there's none of that in Splinter Cell. It's like, get up, crawl into a dark space and sit there and wait watch the guards, wait for the guard to make a move and walk his little path slowly until he's in the right spot, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can knock him out. And then you have to be able to knock him out and you have to be able to pick him up. I think it was one of the first games that utilized that mechanic as well, where you were able to pick up the enemy that you knocked out or killed and hide the body. 
and that's become a staple in the genre now. Um, and yeah. then also the throwing of the rocks kind of to alert guards to like, hey, mm-hmm. go over there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's kind of interesting, too, because Splinter Cell has gone through through its history has gone through such a weird progression. Like it started with like a very linear, hardcore stealth game that I mean, you couldn't even have there weren't even kill animations, you know, like you had to go up to them. You'd either have to shoot them or elbow them if you were up close and the elbowing would take forever. And then it kind of like that style kind of peaked with chaos theory and then conviction like they went the complete opposite direction in a sense where, yeah, stealth was still a thing, but you couldn't move bodies. I don't think you could shoot out lights from what I remember. It was very much like you're saying, like the fast kill is all about taking these people out as quickly as you can. And you saw that with the mark and execute ability where, you know, Ghost Recon kind of started using that too, where you could mark people and then run into a room and then Sam Fisher would like lock onto all of them and you'd get a kill animation where you just drop them all, which like to be fair was cool. But it's just not satisfying. At least I didn't think it was nearly as satisfying as like plotting out how I'm going to deal with these three guards very carefully and stealthily as opposed to just like, all right, now they've got this little red arrow over their head. So I'm going to jump in through the window and just pop them all in the head and that'll be it. Yeah. And environmental kills, too. It lets you do that. And so you're able to really utilize. I think that was one of the strengths of the level design. You mentioned it, the bank level. And there's only 10 levels. Mm-hmm. So... They're all meticulously crafted in a way where you can really access almost any space from a multitude of different ways. Yep. Um, it's like play your own way, which is really fun because I may try to approach it differently than you. I may want to come from the top where you may want to come from the bottom. And this game has so many different mechanics and so many different gadgets that let you do pretty much any playstyle you want. I mean, there's obviously the classic memorable move of jumping up between or jumping up in a wall or on a hallway and splitting your legs and watching somebody go beneath you. I don't yeah, think we'll totally. forget about that. And then the nope. cameras uh, going underneath the doors. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite things. What were some of your favorite gadgets? I mean, I mostly use the, the, what was it? The, the, the sticky gas grenade where you shoot it and then you could make a little noise and then guards would surround it and they'd be like what the hell is this and then you just release the gas to knock them all out uh that was always my favorite i also really liked on the pistol you had that little emp charge where you could point at camera you could point at lights and cameras and shut them down because that didn't from what i remember that didn't hurt your stealth rating so you could basically like emp blast the light and run through the room while it's dark and just completely confuse the guards uh, and move on to the next room. So, so that was really cool. And that was also really cool in co-op too, because so in, in the main game, you could point at it and you can disable a light for like a couple seconds, but in co-op, you had to hold down the, the, the EMP charge in order to keep it off. So with my buddy, right, I'd have to go in and like aim at the, aim at the camera and hold it down. And then he'd run by while I'm holding it down. He'd get to the other side, aim his gun up, and hold it down to like disable it while I ran to the other side. It's just a lot of really cool co-op mechanics and as well. Ooh, that sounds fun. I like that one a lot, actually. Um, what about the story? Is, is anything in the story stand out here? Is it all the gameplay? Because this is a Tom. It's based on a Tom Clancy character, and Tom Clancy, obviously known for some of the best modern military stories that we've ever had. Many of them turned into great movies. I will say, and also video game series. But I feel like this game kind of had to live up to that standard. And is there anything about the story that you feel stood out? 
Not really. Okay. (laughs) I think that is the one thing about this game where it kind of, like, the story is kind of nonsense from what I remember. Mm -hmm. It's, I I personally, I think I kind of like it just because Ubisoft today has kind of gotten, the Tom Clancy games especially have gotten so far away from, like, these somewhat grounded tactical real storylines to, you know, you're in, you're in this made up, you're in this, you're in this made up island and there's a ex soldier who's trying to hunt you down and break point or something like that. And it's like, all right, that's cool. But that doesn't really seem like a Tom Clancy story to me. That just seems like, that seems like a, 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 you know, like a popcorn action movie trope sort of thing. Well, like the things I did really appreciate about Splinter Cell Chaos Theory story and the other Splinter Cell games is that they tried to keep them grounded almost so much so that a lot of it was nonsense. But yeah, I mean, like, I couldn't tell you what happened in the story. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I mean, I really enjoy the opening. It's got a, for the age of the game, it's a fairly cinematic type opening. It takes a little bit of time. It really sets up kind of the world backstory, terrorists and whatnot, and Sam infiltrating this boat and yacht and all this stuff. And it's, I mean, it's, or I guess it's a shipping boat, actually a shipping container filled ship, but and then ultimately ending up on this island and then having to infiltrate this base. And it, it, it works. It absolutely works. I like the way that it integrates kind of your handler. That feels very Tom Clancy to me. Yes. I like really. that. I like before each mission, there's like, you can basically get your whole crew's take on the mission you're about to do and mm-hmm. they'll recommend different loadouts for you like that. That is pretty neat. Yeah, it feels exactly. It feels like you have a true team of operatives that are like, analysts i guess in the military world back at the cia headquarters that are kind of helping you while you're out in the field um and yeah. so i liked that immersion and then i gotta say for me michael ironside voicing sam fisher is just one of the best voice performances by a known actor i think we've ever got in a video game I, totally <laughs> i'm a top gun like unapologetic one of my top five movies ever so i freaking love top gun and so just to have jester like <laughs> go from a naval pilot to essentially a Navy SEAL, I think it's phenomenal and a cool career path for him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I and that, that's another reason why I think I really like, why the Splinter Cell games got me. I was so invested in the Splinter Cell games, even though the story always never super interests me. And I think it's because Michael Ironside did such a fantastic job as that character. He brought so much, or he brings so much, so much character, so much levity, uh, so much, I I don't know he he uh, he's great I I there's so many so many great lines that he has throughout that game he does yeah he delivers them in a way that a lot of video game normal video game actors just can't it, it feels cinematic and it comes from that experience and the talent that he has it's like a Nolan North or a Troy Baker you know for it's like a top tier type of performance. And just to have him be such a recognizable voice, I think, works really well. I still think we need a Sam Fisher-based Splinter Cell movie, though. And I, I I had written this down in the notes to ask you why <laughs> we don't have that yet, Jake. And that was before I knew that you used to be into film. So so what's even weirder, too, is I remember, and I, I, don't, know if you, I don't know if you saw it, uh, but I thought you put this here because in Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, in the extras, there's a teaser for the Splinter Cell movie coming soon. <laughs> I did not know. No. Yeah, you should check it out. It's it's wild. It's like you've seen them in the games. Now it's yeah. time to see them on the big screen. And then you see the goggles come up and like the the oh. you know the 
noise or whatever. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so cheesy. Uh, but I remember being so stoked for this movie when I saw that because for some reason, you know, it's such a, I don't know, mid 2000s thing to do like, yeah, let's put a trailer for our movie in the game and you can watch it. And, you know, we've never gotten that movie. There's been all sorts of rumors about it or different ones. Like what's the latest one? Tom Hardy supposed to be Sam Fisher, which I think oh, he would gosh. not be a good Sam Fisher. Yeah. I, I think you, you got to have a old disgruntled actor who's play sam fisher because i mean i don't know if you played blacklist but they switched the voice actor and it just did, did not mm-hmm. work just did not yeah. work i think that's one of the things that makes this one so iconic is is that voice so yeah well, i hope i hope we get a movie eventually but i mean uncharted is like one of my favorite series of all time and i'm still waiting on that yeah. i don't know i still don't believe it's going to happen even though tom holland says they're filming <laughs> so, <laughs> so i'll hold out hope for splinter cell too but a little less so well Man, I appreciate you coming on. This has been awesome. Um, why don't you tell people where they can find your work, your writing, your videos, your podcasting, all that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Deck. I usually just post whatever I'm working on or whatever I make to there. So except for the podcast, I forget to post the podcast a lot. Uh, but if you want to listen to GameSpot After Dark, you can just check it out on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much wherever. But yeah, I would say I would say that's it. All right. Well, listeners, if you like what you heard here, please subscribe. We're new and in our infancy, and it will help us out, help you remember to get notified. Share us with your friends. Follow us on social media at The Games We Love, or you can follow me personally at Aaron L. White. That's Aaron E-L-W-H-I-T-E. I also stream on Twitch weekly, often open world games that are perfect for drop-in viewing. I'd love to have you follow and come chat where we can talk about your favorite games, movies, or anything else that makes you happy. You can find me at twitch.tv Aaron L. White. We have conversations coming up soon with more amazing folks such as YouTube film critic Jeremy Johns, former IGN host and podcaster, uh, the History and Games podcast, Megan Sullivan, and also a budding young teenage game developer who happens to be my daughter. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, so leaving a five-star review will also help us out. It'll help us grow, help us get noticed, and is much appreciated. Jake, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and sharing your passion for games with us. It has been awesome. And thank you, everyone, for listening, because this podcast is for you. We'll be back next week. So until then, get out there and fall in love with the game.